It's the film file. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this is episode 87. Hello and welcome to the film file brought to you by the friendly neighborhood geeks only known as myself, Lee Ford, and me, Andy Meakin. And we hope you are well. I was just about to say, just before we started recording, that I got one of those things, those pop-ups on Facebook that said, a reminder of, and it was a reminder of last year when we were sort of in episode, in the teens. (laughs) And it was sort of like, oh my goodness, because we are now on episode 87. And it uh, it was just over a year ago that we were we were still in in our low numbers of of having programs because when we started this we were as and when weren't we really Andy yeah we we tried to keep it fortnightly but sometimes we slipped to three weeks it was just whenever we could gather together and meet up but lockdown forced us into it forced us into finding a way to do it online so because we couldn't meet up which has actually worked out more convenient even though we could meet up now to record, because we can just jump on at any point during the week where we're both free. We can record an hour at a time, half an hour at a time, whatever, and then put together the show each week. So we've become a weekly show. Over this past year and a half, we became a weekly show. And now it just feels... It just feels like a great chat between me and you each week. It's it's our chance to just, like, geek out for an hour and a half, (laughs) or or as last week showed. Uh, I mean... The radio version for those of you like those who listen on Nobody's Radio, it's always one hour. Um, the podcasters are used to us having like one hour fifteen, one hour twenty. It was one hour forty last week. Oh, was and it? That, and that was after I'd edited out twenty minutes of us just going off on tangents. <laughs> <laughs> See, I listen back. I I listen every every week um, because Andy, it's, it's no secret that Andy's the one who does all the work, and I turn up. <laughs> And go, right, let's do it. I've got some notes. I don't know where they are, but I've got some somewhere. And Andy's the one who who puts the production value into the show. So kudos to Andy every week. He should be my neat thing, really. Uh, <laughs> but I listen on my way into work every every, every time the show lands. I get the pop-up. And if you subscribe, you'll get that pop-up too. And um, and I go, oh, wow, did we say that? I don't remember that section. <laughs> or, oh, I didn't use the right mic. Or, <laughs> or something. Uh, but he, uh, Andy knits it together seamlessly. And I'm seamlessly going to go into I mean, talking about what we've got on this week's show. I mean, be, before we move, before we see it, I'm going to break your seam now. I'm going to turn it uh, apart okay. and just go off on a tangent because this is what we do. We go off on tangents. Uh, you know, you're talking about like how I knit it together. And there's times where we'll get to the end of like doing the news and then all of a sudden something will drop and it'll be like, oh, we need to add this in or, oh, some more developments on this. And I then have the fun of going back and finding places to squeeze it in so it feels that it was done at the same time. Yeah. And um, it, I love the challenge. It's bizarre, but I do love the challenge. Well, uh, but we, we do do that. I mean, if, if when um, we try to stay as current as possible and drop in, you know, the odd, you know, sad news, for instance, or, or breaking news, we try and get it in almost the 11th hour uh, just before we've got to send the show off for, for the radio, for the No Barriers show. Uh, and for our own deadlines and uh, we we've not missed a deadline uh, at this stage no it's uh it, we've managed to hit it at each moment and that's with you know both of us working full time uh, you know and find it like clawing at any schedule moments and also trying to fit in 
you know, social activities and, you know, building our lives back up. Because now that we can have social activities, obviously we, we both want to catch up with things. I mean, me, me and the wife are currently celebrating our 20th anniversary weekend at the moment. Congratulations. I was just about to say that. You were leading me down the path to say, and talking of social lives, it is Andy's 20th wedding anniversary. So if you're at home, please raise whatever glass or cup <laughs> is in your hand. And if, uh, if, you, if you're drinking heavily, raise the bottle. Which uh, means that I'm feeling a bit bloated at the moment because as part of it, we've, we've been going away and leaving the kids um, back at, I, I say kids, but the, the eldest just, is Is that legal? Now. I have seen Home Alone. And <laughs> I think what we didn't see in the Home Alone director's cut is social services get involved. <laughs> The, the eldest is 19, so it's not okay. that we're abandoning like three-year-olds in the house. But we've been having time for ourselves. We went back to see my mum and dad uh, this weekend. And we've just been out for breakfast this morning at um, a lovely little lovely little um, coffee bar called Dish. If you're in the Sheffield area and you know Ecclesall Road, head to the top end of there near the park. Place called Dish. Their breakfast was delightful. Oh, Probably sounds- recommend it. It's one of my favourite things. I love going out for breakfast. In fact, back in my sort of going out heyday, when literally we'd do all weekends, we used to have a thing called the Breakfast Club, clearly inspired by <laughs> the film, uh, that no matter where we'd been the night before this this bunch of friends, we would meet up on, on a Saturday morning and, uh, and have breakfast, no matter how hungover we were or whatever state of uh, of falling apart we were in uh, we would always meet up and it's something i love going out for breakfast we did it yesterday with 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 my good lady and uh, it's just one of those things that i absolutely adore going out for breakfast maybe we yeah, should wh- do a breakfast show somewhere over eggs <laughs> one thing that we haven't done for our anniversary was go out and protest chubby brown not being able to play in sheffield because uh, that was <laughs> hilarious <laughs> all of his fans came out in force all 20 of them <laughs> <laughs> hey, look. I mean, if we want to get into a talk about censorship, uh, we we could we could. I, you know, I'm I'm not a fan. Far from it from of Chubby Brown and his comedy. However, I'm not a fan of of, of censoring people either. So uh, yeah. it's an interesting debate to be had at some point. We need to have the right film geek moment to be able to talk about such issues. Yeah. But yes, it was a it wasn't exactly a, a, a runaway. Uh, where the cops were called and uh, you know, <laughs> the edge of civil obedience was uh, was under threat by the so-called uh, demonstration. Can I use that word when there's only 20 people? As I've said online, you know, at the end of the day, I, I used to think Chubby Brown was funny. And then I turned 12 and uh, I found other things to do. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a fan of Chubby Brown, feel free to email in and give me abuse because uh, that's what you do. <laughs> right. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> In this week's film file, we have a deep dive into Richard Lester's The Three Musketeers. We will be reviewing Respect. Uh, I'll also be reviewing Kate that landed on Netflix this week and James Wan's Malignant. We'll be talking about last week's What If and, of course, no show is complete without the news. So, uh, Andy. Here's the news. And I know we're going to talk, firstly, about the box office. Tell me one thing, Andy. Am I going to be disappointed with Shang-Chi? No, of course you're not. Now, as as we've said previously, all eyes were going to be on Shang-Chi's opening week and then specifically this second week because every film that has been released 
and done the split release this year has seen approximately a 70% or more drop-off on week two. And then Shang-Chi was the interesting experiment by Disney to see whether or not they can actually, you know, get some money if they actually release things normally. And so everyone was seeing what kind of drop-off it would have. So Shang-Chi had a 53% drop-off for his second week, which places it similar to the pre-pandemic Marvel titles that used to drop off 45 to 55%. It's okay. it's roared past Black Widow to be the fastest film to pass 100 million in the US this year, and it's crossed 250 million dollars globally with ease. Now, Black Widow suffered a 70 percent drop off, as we've said, on its w- second week. So it's looking very likely that Shang Chi is going to pass the total revenue of that release pretty soon. Right. Which, when you're talking about a brand new character entering into the, I know the MCU is popular, but the brand new characters kind of struggle generally, especially when it's such an unknown character as someone like Shang-Chi. That's pretty much a success. Let's talk about that being an unknown character, because outside of comics, you really don't know who Shang-Chi is. Ant-Man at least had some kind of recognition from, from some of the cartoons, yeah. as did Doctor Strange. But Shang-Chi... A complete unknown. even inside of comics it's it's a very small audience yeah, who yeah, knows yes. know shang chi i know in recent years the characters come back in a new revitalized format but even that's not been a hot selling character title and only done like small little limited series so it was a huge gamble for them to start off this new phase with such an unknown character but it's a gamble that's paid off it's paid off creatively because i think it's one of the most creative Marvel films that there's been today, as we spoke about last week. If you want to know our full feelings tonight, just listen to last week's podcast. You'll you'll hear us completely extol the virtues of the film. But it's also paid off from a from a, a viewing audience standpoint as well. Well, there's a lot to like, as we know, and and part of that is Marvel are very good, and sometimes they're criticised for it, but doing mass appeal movies yeah. and 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 change their game with every different phase and certainly with shang chi we said this in in our review and as as andy said if you want to go back and check it out that it's not in a typical marvel movie probably until until the last act but the fact that a lot of it is subtitled fully chinese cast with nobody really recognizable to a to a mass audience in it perhaps michelle yeo to 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 the general public Elsewhere on box office, Malignant, the new film from James Wan, which we will cover in a review later on, had a pretty lacklustre release. It landed in third... Oh, really? In the US, it landed in third place behind Free Guy, which has been running for about three or four weeks now. It took only 5.8 million in the US and 9.5 million elsewhere in the world, which on a 40 million budget isn't that strong, especially for a horror. I'm surprised. I'm really surprised. I've not seen it yet. Oops, spoiler <laughs> for later. But I've not seen it yet, and I like James Wan. I'm good. I'm glad he's gone back to his horror roots. I think I prefer him there than say Aquaman, for instance. I thought this would have been a bit of a tonic. It's not a huge budget, forty million, but it does seem, from what you're saying, that the audience has not found it. I wonder why. Well, uh, Wan is laying some of the blame at the split release with hbo max the model Uh, that has been plaguing warner brothers releases for pretty much the year so far 
Um, many of the underperforming Warner Brothers films at the box office this year have been a victim of the HBO Max splits. The only one that kind of got through it was Godzilla vs. Kong, but that did significant overseas business in territories that didn't have HBO Max, such as China. Right. Fourth place in the US were taken up by Candyman. So here we have a horror that has been already been out for three weeks and is still scraping just under five million on its fourth week, which kind of shows the contrast that a horror film from James Wan should have done a lot more than 5.8 yeah, million absolutely. on this opening I'm week. I'm so surprised. So it, it's a it's a big, big disappointment for Wan's, well, Wan's fan base and also for maybe his future after Aquaman because if he's not happy with how Warner Brothers are going, well, I can see him moving on. You know, Warner Brothers have, have really suffered with this. Disney have made big announcements we'll talk about in a little while about about split releases and Warners are still hanging in there. Um, we know, as, as we all, again, we'll talk about the Matrix uh, trailer. It's still saying split release for Matrix. I think because they were already committed to all of their releases this year, had already been announced we're going to the split release. The, the Matrix, I think, is the last one that has that confirmed split release. There are rumours and talks that Warners are not considering it for any of the titles from next year onwards. Right. So spinning off from the weekend box office, uh, Disney have confirmed that their three remaining films of 2021, which are Eternals, West Side Story and Encanto, will all be cinema exclusives. Mm, I wonder why. This is strange news, isn't it? It's it's almost like this interesting experiment that Bob Chapek referred to the release of Shang-Chi in a rather sarcastic manner has turned out to be a proof that people want to go back to the cinema for the right films. Well, that's what we've always said. I mean, we have sung this since we were in an opportunity to be able to look at the way that films were coming out. Now, we totally understand, and we said this at the time, because I've gone back and I've checked, Andy, that we were we were all for bringing out content because it sat on the shelf doing nothing. In fact, I think... Yeah. We use that exact argument. You know, these films are losing money because they're sat on the shelf doing nothing. And then the world started to change. Then we saw Warner Brothers HBO split relief schedule, uh, which has still not gone away yet. But I have a feeling they might start to change their mind. I'm looking at you, The Matrix. So it makes sense. And, and we, without going over the argument time and time again, it's what crippled, I honestly believe, is what crippled Black Widow. Yeah. I mean, Black Widow's still one of the biggest releases of this year, but it should have been significantly higher. And the the problem is, I mean, yes, it's all well and good if you're one of the proponents of streaming and you don't feel comfortable in the cinema and you say, but I'd be happy to pay to rent it at home. The problem is with people who will illegally stream it from home, because as soon as it's available on a streaming network, there's a perfect high quality rip online, on all the pirate streaming sites that people will tap into. And that's where the issue is, and that's why they don't make money. Streaming can never generate the kind of revenue that box office does. And whilst you can turn around and say, well, Netflix throw $200 million at a film. It's like, yes, but Netflix have been reportedly running in the red for the past decade. They have been playing the long game. And now, as we've reported before, they're currently in negotiations with people like Nolan who are very cinema centric so they've obviously got their eye on the longer longer game and are preparing to take the step towards the big box office so they're doing the reverse way around 
this is the industry that we live in. And yes, the, the streaming is important. The streaming does generate some revenue, but not as much as the box office. And it's all about the release day windows now. Um, the three films that are getting released straight to the cinema, Eternals, West Side Story and Encanto. Encanto is going to have a 30-day window before it goes on to Disney+. Plus, and the others will have the 45-day window. In addition, the Fox titles that are upcoming, uh, The Last Duel, The King's Man, and Ron's Gone Wrong, which Ron's Gone Wrong looks like a great little charmer of an animation. I can't wait for that one. And I was just about to say, how cool does Last Duel look as well? I've, I've not caught the trailer of that, and Ooh, that's simply because okay. I'm already bought into that film. I don't want to watch a trailer. I don't need something to convince me. I want to go in blind. Right. Uh, the, the, those Fox titles are still go- are going to do the box office exclusivity and then 45-day windows before they go to streaming. So there's people out there who say that streaming is the future and we need to get rid of it, get used to it. Yes, it is the future. It's 45 days in the future. Just get used to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. We are living in a new age. There's no denying that. And, and there are certain changes, but... As we've always said, the best place to see movies is at the cinema because you don't just get to see a movie, you get to have an experience. Yeah. And when we've talked about films, watching them on Netflix, I will always think that I, when I saw The Irishman, I didn't get to see mm. The Irishman as intended because I stopped halfway through and, and, and had a coffee and did something else for, for 10 minutes before going back to the film. I would have been sat in my seat in the cinema, probably cross-legged, but yeah. <laughs> desperate for a week. But I would have, uh, I would have endured that for, for the uh, for the film, and it didn't have the impact it would have had on me. I think if I'd have seen it in the big screen. But anyway, yeah. it's good news. We're yet to see where Warner's go with this. And Paramount to a degree. Well, with Paramount over there, there's a change of CEOs at the moment. Jim Giannopoulos is exiting his role. And Brian Robbins, who steps away from Nickelodeon, is stepping into the position. Now, Robbins hasn't worked with big, major budgets and A-listers before. So there's a lot of speculation in the trade press at the moment that Paramount may be scaling back on their theatrical releases and targeting their Paramount Plus service as a, a prime feature going forwards. Now, obviously... Paramount have titles such as Transformers franchise, the Star Trek franchise, Mission Impossible in their back catalogue. They're not going to drop theatrical completely for their major films. So those films will still be major tentpole event movies. But they will now look at any spin-offs from franchise or remakes or smaller projects will be made for their Paramount Plus service. Because... We've said this before, we're in a day and age where there's multiple streaming services from multiple studios and they're all vying for that little bit of the Netflix, Disney and Amazon crown. And someone's going to fall by the wayside if they can't get any exclusive content. So Paramount are kind of stepping away from just being, because they've always been purely cinema up until this point for their films. They're going to start doing a split kind of joint venture, similar to how we're seeing Disney doing at the moment, that sometimes they make films exclusively for Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Most of the time, they make the movies for the big screen. At the same time, Halloween Kills, which is only a month away, is going straight to streaming on Peacock in the US. Peacock, another one of those streaming platform subscription services that is majorly struggling with content. And this is clearly a cynical exercise in trying to boost their subscriber base. That's interesting. Now, where does that leave an international and UK audience? I there's there's nothing confirmed at the moment, but I suspect that it'll be similar to what we saw with the HBO Max releases in that the cinemas got them. And then a couple of weeks later, there was a deal with someone like Sky or someone like Amazon 
to show them as part of a premium subscription service or premium premium rental price. But we don't know because Peacock hasn't really built up any reputation with, well, it hasn't built up a reputation in the US, let alone with any um, international distribution. So I think that for us in the UK, Halloween Kills will still be a cinema exclusive. And I think that's where it belongs. I think horrors deserve to be big screen. Well, you know my theory that if you have a date, your first date, you the best thing to take a first date to is not a romantic comedy, is to take them to see a horror movie because you get to know much more about somebody in a horror movie than you do in a romantic comedy because it is so one-sided and leaning to something. You get closer to somebody in a horror movie than you do in a romantic comedy. Yeah. And therefore, horror, as we've seen with Candyman, works so well on the big screen, especially yeah. if you have a franchise recognisable character as you do with Halloween. So I, I am genuinely, genuinely surprised that, that they've taken this choice, especially off the back end of how well Candyman did. Yeah, it, it is a strange choice, but this is strange times for the industry. Now, the tickets are on release at the moment, but Bond No Time to Die has passed the censorship restrictions in China and will become one of those rare non-Chinese films that is getting a release over there this year. Okay, that's interesting. Which, as we've reported before, Bond needs to make as much revenue as it can in order to break even. We speculated between 800 million to 900 million. The Chinese market is always big for Bond, and it gives it a very good chance of recouping those costs. In addition, Dune has been granted Chinese release as well. So another film that needed that revenue is getting the Chinese market. At this point in time, Shang-Chi is still very, very uncertain for a release. Not helped at all by uh, unearthed comments from Simu Lu from 2017 when he criticised the Chinese government. So I think it's safe to say that Marvel aren't going to be releasing any films in China for the foreseeable future at this rate. Yeah, certainly not with Eternals and, as you said, Shang-Chi, which is, which is a shame. But... It's a very political situation over there, and any comments against the Chinese government means that they're instantly going to dismiss your film and ignore it. And yeah. they're very keen on only restricting a certain number of westernized films for their markets. And their market is huge. It's worth noting that there's one Chinese release this year, which was a, a Chinese production, Chinese film, that has generated over $800 million worth of revenue. Wow. So there's a huge market over there. So any US film that manages to tap that market is pretty much guaranteed to be making profit. So Bond is looking very favourable. Dune is looking very favourable. And yeah, it, it's made Villeneuve, with Dune in particular, feel, feel even more optimistic about getting the chance to make that part two now. Let's hope so. So I've got a bit of news. What have you got for us? Our very own Christopher Nolan. And when I say very own, I mean British. I, that's about the only relationship to him <laughs> being our very own. But we know he's had a film due for some time and there's been rumours of it. Now, apparently, his next film is going to be about Robert J. Oppenheimer. History buffs and war buffs will know that he is the man who invented the atomic bomb. And then afterwards, subsequently, after seeing its, its fury once it was released, having deep guilt and deep regrets about it, Interesting territory for Nolan. He's been in, in World War II territory before, of course, with Dunkirk. Andy, do we know any more about 
this particular project? Very little, aside from the fact that this is the project that Nolan has been shipping around for the past few weeks. We reported a few weeks ago how he was in talks with Netflix, and it's been reported heavily over this past week that he has been talking to multiple studios. He's basically been selling himself off. Seems that the only studio that he wasn't in talks with was um, Warner Brothers. And we go again. It's literally been released as we're recording now the news that Universal have secured a deal to get Nolan's oh. Oppenheimer film. Now, this this move to Universal is huge. This is massive news because Nolan has been comfortably sat as a complete creative with full control over multi-million blockbuster movies, which were very risky movies as well. They were very risky and creative projects that he threw it through all the money at. We're looking at you, Tenet. Without any studio interference. And while some of them didn't quite work, and you know, you've said Tenet, and I also say Interstellar, another film that thought it was cleverer than what it actually yeah, was. I agree. When he did hit things like Dunkirk, man, they were powerful, they were moving, they were engaging. But the key thing was Warner's gave him full control. Spending two hundred million dollars or more and getting that much control was quite it showed their trust in him. But Everything fell apart after Tenet came out, and not because of Tenet. Tenet got the release that Nolan was expecting. He wanted it on the cinema. He got the cinema release. It was the fallout from it as Warner's started to shift all of their properties to HBO Max going forward to split releases. And Nolan stood up on behalf of the rest of the industry and said, this isn't fair on any of the creatives. They've not made films for the small screen. They've made them for the big screen. This is not where I want to be anymore. And he was very vocal about it. This fallout, someone was going to snap it up. I think Universal have clearly, they clearly must have done a really good deal with him and given him full creative control because he's not going to want to lose that control that he's had over all his properties. So where does that leave Warners with their kind of created wonderkind, if you know what I mean? Or if you watch Ted Lasso, wonderkid. (laughs) Nice reference. (laughs) Uh, clearly, we've we've hinted at this before, and it'll be Villeneuve. Villeneuve, even though his films haven't performed yet for them, there's expectation that Dune might be the one that favours quite well for him and shows that he can bring huge-scale blockbusters of a sci-fi venture to the screen in an ambitious project. We've already reported that it's looking like Warners will be willing to accept a small loss on that film in order to get the second part made and latest reports has it that Villeneuve has pointed out that they're not just going to be looking at box office but they will take the viewership on HBO Max into account basically saying if these people had gone to see June part one at the cinema we would have made this much money so the second film potentially could make um amount of money which that's clear because he was very vocal against the move to HBO Max he was very very close to leaving himself this must have been part of their negotiations in order to keep hold of him. He's the closest to Nolan that that studio's now got because, yeah, they've got James Wan, but how for how long? As we've already pointed out, it might not be long. Um, yeah, we, we, can, we can only see what the future brings. We can only hope that Dune performs enough to keep Villeneuve around for Warners. We can only hope that Warners learn a, ha- learn a big lesson from all of this, basically. Uh, one thing for sure is that anything that Nolan makes will be classed as cinema, which gets us to the is it cinema debate. Remember the is it cinema debate. Remember when Scorsese started off this whole 
that's not cinema. That's not cinema. <laughs> I thought we'd moved on. That wasn't that two years ago, was it last year? I can't remember. It's all merged into one, but it's resurfaced again this time because one of Scorsese's most famous collaborators, Paul Schrader, who pens Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation, and Bringing Out the Dead, has been asked for his thoughts on what makes something cinema. Okay. And this is an Oscar nominated this is an Oscar nominated writer who's well and truly beloved throughout the industry. And his quotes about superhero films in particular, no, they are cinema. So is that cat video so is that cat video on YouTube? That's cinema. It's kind of surprising that what we used to regard as adolescent entertainment, comic books for teenagers, has become the dominant genre economically. Each generation is informed and informed by literature or informed by theatre or informed by live television or informed by film school. Now we have a generation that's been informed by video games and manga. It's not that filmmakers have changed. It's that the audiences have changed. And when the audiences don't want serious movies, it's very, very hard to make one. When they do, when they ask you, what should I think about women's lib, gay rights, racial situations, economic equality, and the audience is interested in hearing about those issues, well, then you can make those movies. And we have, particularly in the 50s, in the 60s and the 70s, we're making them one or two a week about social issues. And they were financially successful because audiences wanted them. And then something changed in the culture. The centre dropped out. Those movies are still being made, but they're not the centre of the conversation anymore. So he's quite clear that what defines cinema is not the content. It's the era that you live in. And so these event movies at this point in time are cinema. So... Scorsese, when he refers to cinema, he refers to the 70s, 80s kind of filmmaking. What he was heavily involved in, like evolving those storytellings. It, what's interesting is how closely he's worked with Scorsese. It's interesting to see that someone so close to him would have such a contrasting viewpoint of the whole thing. The, the rumours that Scorsese has now torn a page out of his contacts book are just that rumours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, it, it's interesting. It's funny enough. It's uh, it's not a million miles away from a debate I, I was having with some film students. We we are products of the time we live in. Now, uh, as, as Schrader said, you know th- those times are different. But the dominant entertainment forces in the fifties, the forties and the fifties, were, were the western and yep. war movies, uh, and. Both of them lasted until there was a major sea change in the 60s and cinema changed again and became a, more about the human condition as a part of, mm. you know, things like musicals dipped out in, in the 60s, you know, the, the last big one being Paint Your Wagon. Uh, and we, we see odd resurgences in, into, uh, into all those genres, uh, musicals, westerns, the war movie. But the prevalent audience demand now is for larger than life i think it says something about the world that we live in the uncertainty of the world that we live in and we need heroes if that is to change at any point we will we will move on as a society because that's how we view cinema but the one thing that we now have that we never had before is and we just spoke about it is the amount of ways to access content and smaller films do seem to find the audience and things like the marriage story that was on Netflix, find those Mm. audiences on Netflix because they're intimate. And we, we no longer have a TV screen, which is only 18 inches, 15 inches wide. We've got, you know, those kind of uh, kind of movies where you don't need your 15 speakers. There's an intimacy to those films that you wouldn't find necessarily in a cinema, not for a, a huge mass audience. So 
I, I totally, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with Schrader. And I think, you know, one day the superhero genre will kind of move on or evolve into something else. Yeah. As, as eggs is eggs, that will one day happen. When, at the moment, we are riding the geek wave because we now know that geek is cool, which wasn't 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> And, and with regards to the comic book movies and superhero movies, I believe that Marvel, uh, as well as the already announced titles, have got some secret titles in the pipeline. So, Andy, you're right. Four new untitled movies for 2024 are coming from Marvel Studios with days. So we already know that they have five films scheduled to open in 2023 but now, now releasing an additional four untitled movies in 2024. So what have we got coming up? We've got The Eternals in November, Spider-Man No Way Home in December, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness next March, Thor Love and Thunder in May of next year, Black Panther Wakanda Forever in July of next year, Marvel's in November, and then in 2023, Ant-Man and Wasp Mania, Guardians of the Galaxy in May 2023. And then we start to get these uh, untitled new Marvel movies for 2023 and these now additional. And dates included include February, May, July and November uh, have all been added. As to what they are, let the speculation begin. I mean, Deadpool, Deadpool 3, let's be honest. Yeah. So rumour has it Fantastic Four is going to be one of those. Uh, yes. I think we could put safe money because there has been a soft announcement that Captain America 4 is going to happen. Uh, with Anthony yep. Mackie, so that's a probable. We know that Blade is coming out uh, in 2023, but there's uh, uh, still those mysteries. I I'm with you on Deadpool. There's rumour of an X-Men movie, but you know what? I still don't see it. I, I don't see the MCU going down that route just yet. Yeah. I don't know why. I think it's maybe still too close to home. I agree with you, simply because if this phase is working up towards Fantastic Four coming into it, I don't think they'll want to also throw mutants into it at this point. They'll wait until after yeah. the four have been introduced, and then they'll start to introduce the other Fox characters at later date in the next phase. Yeah, so uh, speculation, let us know. Um, our thoughts are Deadpool. Our thoughts, of course, uh, Fantastic Four and Blade, which have already been announced. Captain America 4. What else could one of those films be? We'll keep you posted as soon as we know. Hey, did you see the Hawkeye trailer that just dropped? Oh, man. This is another great example of how Marvel with their TV shows are doing something strikingly different on each one because WandaVision was a nod back to classic sitcoms uh, with the whole sitcom aesthetics throughout the years, as well as an intriguing mystery, which everyone got wrong. Um, Loki was a sci-fi caper, basically. And this, this looks like Die Hard with a bow and arrow. It looks very big. It looks very expensive. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's very glossy. It almost has that kind of Joel Silver look to it. So I, I totally get the sort of Shane Black sort of diehard reference to it. So, yeah, completely looking forward to it. it it's nice to expand uh, that character. I don't think, hasn't been particularly well served on the big screen. Has been a little bit marginalized, even though there's yeah. been some fabulous scenes. But good to explore that character in even more depth. Yeah, and you know, Jeremy Renner finally gets a chance to really pull out the punches and really, really give some meat to his character for a whole TV series. And that lands, doesn't it, in November? 
yeah, November, which means that, I mean, if you've seen the trailer, it's got a very festive theme to it. It's uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year, which makes it feel strange that it's landed in November, but it'll be playing weekly and leading up to Christmas. Think about of it that course, way. Yeah. So uh, it's a great, great Christmas present, basically. Thank you, Disney Plus. I was expecting socks. <laughs> Quickly sticking with Marvel. And so Spidey No Way Home is only a couple of months away. And we've seen the trailer and we've whetted our appetites and we've all started speculating. But Andrew Garfield is once again being confirming his denial of his appearance in Way No Way Home as a fact. Or is it? And I'm going cross-eyed just thinking about whether or not this is actually happening. Uh, yeah, Andrew Garfield is being asked again about his part in the film. And he's firmly saying that he's got nothing to do with it. As he said, I understand why people are freaking out about the concept of that because I'm a fan as well. You can't help but imagine scenes and moments of, oh my God, how cool would it be if they did that? But it's important for me to say on the record that this is not something I'm aware that I'm involved in. But I know I'm not going to be able to say anything that will convince anyone that I don't know what's happening. No matter what I say, I'm, it's either going to be really disappointing for people or it's going to be really exciting. At the same time, Charlie Cox of TV's Daredevil is denying his involvement and denying everything, saying he's been locked down in Ireland for the whole time of the filming. So it can't have been him. Honest guff, he was nowhere <laughs> near the set. Um, I mean, as he said, there was a fan on the Kin crew. I came to work one day and the rumour had come out that he was filming in Atlanta and he asked me like it was a sensible question. And I was like, I've been here every day with you on set. But I think he was so hopeful that he was still like, is it true? And I had to say to him, how would it be true? Even if I had a few days off, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not allowed to fly anywhere. What are you talking about? Did he think Captain America came to get me? So are they in the film or not? Because <laughs> I'm still I'm still not sure. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I don't care until I see the film. And if it's a good film I, and they're not in it, fine. If it's a great film, they're not in it. If they're in it, fantastic. They're in it. It's one of those, I want to know on the day, I want to know when, when the movie starts, because I remember the silly grins that you and I had when we saw J.K. Simmons, because yes. we didn't know that was going to happen right at the end. And and it, and we went both went, whoa, in our best Keanu Reeves, whoa, because it, it blew us out of the water. No, we didn't expect it. It was a genuine surprise. If, it, if they are in it, then it's the worst kept secret, but the best attempt at misdirection that I've ever seen. If they're not in it, it's the best kept secret and the worst attempt at misdirection that I've ever seen. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, at the end of the day, I, I, I'm just I'm giving up speculating on this. I'm giving up like expecting them to be in it or not expecting them to be in it. I'm just going to go in and enjoy the film for what it is. Okay, so some brief news: Nicolas Cage saddles up for a western drama, oh. The Old Way. I'd like to see Nicolas Cage in a western. I never saw Pig, which I'm really looking forward. I know you talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I'm really looking forward to seeing Pig. This is the first time that he's going to be in a Western film. And yeah, I'm a fan of Nick Cage. I'm a fan of Westerns. So sign me up for this one. The Old Way sounds like a classic Western. A former gunslinger living a quiet life who his wife gets murdered and he seeks revenge on the outlaws who did it. Uh, so it's very unforgiven kind of approach. It's that yeah, kind classic of classic Western scenario, that. He's drawn back to his revenge aspect, but he's also got going to complete the shoot on that and then go straight on to another Western, which is Butcher's Crossing, which is an adaptation of the John Williams novel about a buffalo hunter who embarks on a harrowing journey with a young Harvard dropout. So it looks like after all these years of doing random genre films throughout, he's now found an obsession with the Western genre. And I'm all for it. 
So quick spots of news, Andy. Uh, this is a surprise because we were surprised when it was in production. And now we're surprised that it's rap production, which is the Predators film at, at the moment known as Skulls. Yeah. Um, it's a film that's just kind of like went into production without anyone knowing that it was actually getting made. And it's it's finished wrapping. And all that we know about the film is that it's set during the American Civil War and will apparently focus on a Comanche woman who goes against the tribal tribal norms and traditions to become a warrior, which puts her straight in the scope of a predator or maybe partner up with a predator. We don't know anything about how this film's going to play out. All that we know is that there was the buzz when it went into when it went into production that it was going to be a throwback feel to the first Predator movie where it was a one-on-one kind of aspect, where it's one monster, what like one or a small group of humans in a harsh climate and hardly any dialogue, apparently. Interesting. Let's keep our eye out for this. Yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, I've still not got around to seeing Shane Black's The Predator yet. Uh, and the more I keep thinking about it and what everybody says, maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> and before they announce another cast member, Knives Out 2 has also wrapped. <laughs> yeah, it's fi- Knives Out 2 has finally finished shooting, which means that the rest of Hollywood now has some actors freed up to be able to play in other films because uh, that, <laughs> that had literally cast everyone. Uh, They'll just go to John Wick 4. <laughs> That's what is going to happen. I've told you this. You know my theory. <laughs> It'll be a shared universe eventually. The, the, next, the next Knives Out movie will be Benoit Blanc investigating some killings which are being left with stab ch- stabs to the chest and books impaled in the head. <laughs> uh, Juno Temple, who we love in Ted Lasso, heads up for Doug Lyman's new film, Everest, uh, alongside Ewan McGregor, Mark Strong and Sam Howen. Rosaria Dawson has been added to the new Haunted Mansion movie. Yeah, that's uh, packing out its cast quite nicely because uh, Tiffany Haddish, Owen Wilson and Lakeith Stanfield are all already involved in it. This version of The Haunted Mansion is directed by Justin Simeon from a script co-written with Kate Dippold. And the, the franchise has been adapted before in 2003 with Eddie Murphy in the lead role. And it's another one which is adapted from a theme park ride. And as this is a theme park ride that has guests going inside a spooky manner with classic characters such as a psychic medium, Madame Leota, a skeletal bride and cloaked hat box ghost. It's it's one of those franchises that is ripe for a nice slice of family fright fun. I'm quite excited about this. A couple of other quick tidbits for you. Train to Busan director Yo Sang Ho returns to horror in a Netflix series and the trailer has just dropped. And there's been rumours about this for some time, but Guillermo del Toro has a horror anthology set up at Netflix with a whole list of stellar directors that include Badaboot director Jennifer Kent, Mandy's Panos Cosmatis, Twilight uh, filmmaker Catherine Hardwick, and another by A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night director Anna Lily Amapur. And the title of the series is Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, formerly known as 10 After Midnight. Looking forward to that one. I love a great anthology series. And Del Toro's a, a great a great director slash producer when it comes to horrors. Sticking with Scary Front, Paramount has picked up the rights to E1 and Dark Castle's Orphan First Kill, which is a prequel to the 2009 film Orphan. Um, Isabel Furman is going to reprise her role as Lena, the murderous sociopath who has a medical condition that makes her look like a child. 
And following an escape from an institution, she impersonates the missing daughter of a wealthy family, but finds herself pitted against her new mother, played by Julia Stiles, who will protect her family at any cost. The film is being directed by William Brent Bell, who gave us The Boy, uh, which has instantly diminished my expectations for this film. <laughs> it was a bad film, but fingers crossed, it, it, it was just a bad misstep for him. And that this, because The Orphan, I, I, I expected nothing from The Orphan, but found it atmospheric and chilling and it drew me in. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see what they can do with it. Hey, Andy. Yeah. Did you watch the Matrix Resurrection trailer? I was just going to say, shall we talk about that Matrix trailer? <laughs> what did you think? I mean, I mean, wow. Wow. We saw a lot and garnered very little at the same time. Uh, action I, you spectacle. know, I was going to say exactly the same. <laughs> I watched it when, yeah, we're seeing a lot of, lot of big set pieces. What's it about? No idea. Well, <laughs> I, I, I can speculate what I think it's about but I don't know I mean, what it is about. How is Neo back? Why does he not know who he is? Why is Trinity back? Why don't they know each other? Is that a new Morpheus? The original died on the online game, which is considered canon. What's happening? I'm prepared to have my mind absolutely blown apart once again. And what struck me with the trailer, I mean, I love a trailer that has a good needle drop. And to have Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit yes, um, was, was just a perfect perfect piece of music for what we were seeing there i have watched this trailer over and over again and i've, I've been trying i'm doing that stupid thing where as a fan i'm trying to dissect it and try to piece it together but there's clearly a lot of misdirection in there yeah i mean apparently yaha abdul mateen the second has come out and said that he is playing morpheus so yeah um the fit the official synopsis does not to help make sense of anything that's going on. Uh, Warner's official statement is the Matrix Resurrections is a continuation of the story established in the first Matrix. It reunites Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss as cinematic icons Neo and Trinity in an expansion of their story that ventures back into the Matrix and even deeper down the rabbit hole. A mind-bending new adventure with action, action and epic scale. It's set in a familiar yet even more provocative world where reality is more subjective than ever and all that's required to see the truth is to free your mind. Now, <laughs> they only say it's a continuation of the first Matrix film. Does this mean that the second two films, the comics, the anime, Animatrix and the online game are no longer canon or are they misdirecting us and playing with us again? There's theories out there at the moment. Some people are saying that all the events that took place after the Matrix, the real world and Zion, the real world and Zion, and I speculated this way back when the third film came out, that's actually another sub-level of the Matrix to give a false sense of freedom to those who managed to spot that something's not right. So they think they've escaped when they haven't really. They're in another construct. And that maybe this film is another construct outside that one. And the Neo of this external construct can remember the events from within the constructs. And I've just blown my head up again. I, I just need to go and lie <laughs> down. So if you want to finish the podcast without me, just go ahead. I just need just need to have a little rest from that because, whoa, I, I, I didn't get any of it. <laughs> it's it, At the end of the day, this is a franchise that is all about never believing what you see in front of you. So don't take anything in that trailer at face value. Don't trust anything that gets released officially, press releases, etc. There's going to be a lot of misdirection. They want us to be surprised. They want us to be caught out and they want us to be to be drawn into a story that they can tell. And that trailer, as, as sceptical as I've been since they announced they'll make a Matrix 4, going, eh, 
Is it worth it? That trailer straight away made me go, yes, can't wait. I need to see this film and I need to see it on the big screen. That looks amazing. Anyone who watched that trailer at home on a laptop, a phone, whatever, and thought, oh, I can't wait to see that on HBO Max, needs their heads checking. Because that (laughs) film, just the trailer alone, as soon as I saw it, I, I watched it on my tablet and then... When I got home from work, I put it on on my big TV. And even after seeing it on the TV multiple times, I can't wait for that to come in at the cinema because I am going to be watching it on the big screen. I want to watch the trailer on a big screen. Of course, you need to see these kind of films on the big screen. Absolutely. I, I can't imagine, unless there's no other way in the world, you can get to see <laughs> this film watching it at home. I really can't. But a bit like you, mind blown. I thought it gave away a lot, but... In the meantime, <laughs> it gave away so very, very little. But it did what a good trailer should do, which is tantalise you and get you excited yeah. for the film. Andy, any more news? So let's just round off with um, another bit of my fandom aspect. And that is, I want someone to spare me a couple of hundred pounds uh, to be able to treat myself this autumn because they've announced the release of the Middle Earth Ultimate Collector's Edition box set. Yes, it's the 20th anniversary of the Lord of the Rings film dropping. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Just just stop. Stop right there. Whoa. (laughs) 20 years since Lord of the Rings came out. Yeah, 2001, the Fellowship of the Ring landed. Oh, my goodness me. How I think I must have been in the Matrix for for at least 10 of those years. I cannot believe it's 10 years. I I remember so clearly going to see it. Wow. That's, That's blown me more than the Matrix. I mean, it was the, it was my first year of working as a manager within a cinema that that film came out, and what a what a defining moment for cinema that was. But the box set is a thirty one disc four K Ultra HD with Dolby Atmos and Vision HDR remaster set of the Hobbit trilogy and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which will have the theatrical versions and the extended cuts, as well as all the extras that have been released on all the previous discs plus a whole bunch of new extras and so much more involved. I'm like Gollum at this point in time. I'm like, my precious, (laughs) I want this box set in my life, but I can't justify the amount of money. So all donations are are welcome. If anyone wants to get in touch and send me some money, you know the email address. Fire over and just say, we'll we'll buy you it, Andy. We love you so much. And we love the show. (laughs) And that is the news. So this is The Film File with me, Lee Ford, and Andy Meekin. And if you're a fan of this particular episode, then you might be interested to know that there are at least 86 other outstanding episodes of The Film File. So we insist, no, we implore that you head over to your favourite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button and hit that like button. And while you're at it, leave us a review and become part of The Film File family. That means that we come over on Christmas Day and eat with you. If you don't want us to do that, then hit that subscribe button twice. Andy, when we get invited over for Christmas dinner, how can they do that? So you can get in touch with us over on Twitter at Filmfile UK, or you can head over to Instagram and hassle us over there, or just look at pictures of us at Filmfile UK. Or you can email us and tell me how wrong I am about Chubby Brown, uh, or, <laughs> <laughs> or how I need to embrace the boy as a film because it's much better than what we we said said that it was podcast at filmfile.uk every week 
we try to upset and like um, really antagonize one section of society. <laughs> Andy, while we're talking about Twitter, just give a quick plug at MTOS on Twitter. Movie Talk on Sunday or hashtag MTOS is a one and a half hour Q&A Twitter thing each week. It's a, it's a community of like-minded lovers of film answering questions on a topic to do with film. For example, this weekend to tie into mid-20th anniversary. It's a look back at the last 20 years of films. What's your favourite moments Lord of the on Rings, films? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what, who, which directors over the past 20 years have become synonymous for this time that we live in, etc, etc. And there's no right or wrong answers. One question fires out every 10 minutes, starting from 8pm UK time, and you just reply to it, put in the hashtag MTOS, and we discuss around it, and like we'll share opinions. And inevitably, at the end of it, you've got a list of films that you've not seen that other people have recommended that you then struggle to add into your watch list and get around to watch at some point. But it's a great way to relax on a Sunday evening if you're a film fan. So that's hashtag MTOS over on Twitter. Just do a search on Twitter for hashtag MTOS. You'll be able to find all the past posts and see what kind of things that we discuss around it. And certainly worth getting involved in. Still to come on the show, we are looking at last week's What If reviews and, of course, our deep dive, which is this week, the 1973 The Three Musketeers, directed by Richard Lester, starring Michael York, Oliver Reed, Richard Chamberlain, Frank Finley, Christopher Lee, Raquel Welch, Simon Fader, the Three Musketeers, the most read book in the world after the Bible. Filmed with a cast that dazzles the screen with their brilliant performances. There are six of them and we are only three. No. Four. What is your name, youngster? D'Artagnan. Athos, Porthos, Aramis and D'Artagnan. Sword! One for all. All for one. <laughs> The action. You ought to sleep with me. You need a good cattle. Chase the fights away. The romance. Oh, Monsieur Dauphin. Oh. The excitement. <laughs> the suspense. <laughs> the Three Musketeers. A truly great film adventure. Your Majesty refers to God. I refer to Cardinal Richelieu, which is not quite the same thing. The one thing you can say about The Three Musketeers, other than it's a lot of fun, is what a cast. So the film came out in 1973 and was already a proposed part two. It was produced by the Salkins, who then went on using a similar method of shooting films back to back to make Superman and Superman 2. This film, strangely enough, despite having a mega star cast, sticks very, very closely to the Alexander Dumas original story, but it does inject a fair amount of humour and fun into it. It's one of those films that has a staple of the holiday season. What I mean by that is Christmases, Easters, this film will turn up somewhere, usually followed by its sequel. And if you haven't seen it, it has that light, breezy, fun quality that Richard Lester embeds in all of his filmmaking. And it is an absolute treat. And one of those films that is a mirror to the period when the film was made. Andy, I know you have a lot of love for this film. This is one of those films that has a really 
really young lad. Like you say, it used to pop up over holiday periods and I used to look out for it coming around again to so I could catch it again. And I loved the fun. I loved the japery. I loved the antics. But it's one of those films that as I grew older, I started to notice the social commentary and the politics balancing out the humour involved in it. And I became a fan. Of, after watching this for the first time, I rented the Alexander Dumas book out from the library and I immersed myself into it and I absolutely loved it. And it's worth noting that out of all the adaptations of The Three Musketeers that has been throughout the decades, this is strangely, despite the fact that it's quite farcical at times, one of the most faithful adaptations that has been, albeit split into two parts. The sequel followed in 1974, but it doesn't make this film, this first film on its own, any less of a film because it works so well as a solo adventure. It's the introduction of D'Artagnan to the Musketeers and proving himself to the Musketeers whilst there's political intrigue and conspiracy going on behind the scenes that he gets embroiled in. You mentioned, well, you started mentioning the cast lineup, but you could you could talk for 14 hours about everyone who's <laughs> listed in this film. This is the kind of cast that, you know, you look at films like, we always refer to like Ocean's Eleven is like, wow, all those names in one cast. But this did it so much earlier. Every one of the people in this are names that you know, you recognise and you love. For me, this was the film that introduced me to Michael York before Logan's Run. In fact, I only started watching Logan's Run because I recognised Michael York was in it and I felt that I needed to watch it. And he's he's marvellously, charmingly excitable in the role of the ambitious D'Artagnan, ably supported by the greats of the time, Charlton Heston, Raquel Welsh, Richard Chamberlain, Christopher Lee, just to name a handful. I mean, a cast like that is just, you die for a cast like that these days. I mean, we joke about Knives Out and Knives Out 2 are using everyone in Hollywood. They've still got a long way to go before they get as far as this. And that's not even throwing in um, Spike Milligan and Roy Kinnear in the comedy aspects to bring a bit of light levity. This is a fun film. This is a fun and kind of timeless film. Whenever we watched it recently, I've started to embrace some some stuff that you might look at and go, well, that's a bit sloppily put together, like the sword fights. Can I just mention that what I love about the sword fights in this is that they were choreographed to look somewhat clumsy. Yeah. And I think that it's marvellous that it get, that they've, rather than going for like perfect, like, ha-ha, we, we shall parry and joust, ha-ha-ha. It's like clumsily tripping over and throwing things and stumbling because it's how a fight would actually play out and it makes it feel so much more believable. We, we've been leading up to this one. We've been leading up to this as a deep dive and I've just been waiting for the opportunity to sit and revisit it. And I said to you, I guarantee that as soon as I've watched this one, I feel that I need to watch the second one. And yes, I now want to watch the second one because how it finishes just leaves you teased and waiting for the next film. So a bit of background on this. As we said, Richard Lester, Dick Lester, as he's known to his friends, became a big star by directing the two Beatles movie, especially Hard Day's Nights, which we should do a deep dive on. So Lester became involved with the project when the producers briefly considered casting the Beatles as the Musketeers. And as Lester had directed those two with the with the group, they thought he would be the ideal guy. Anyway, as we know, uh, the Beatles idea fell by the wayside, but Lester stayed on. And it would be his first film in five years. And though he was busy directing commercials, he was looking for finance on some other projects, including Flashman, written by George MacDonald Fraser, which he would get the chance to make later on. He brought George MacDonald Fraser onto the, the scripting side who um, wrote 
who brought in the humour into The Three Musketeers and gelled wonderfully with Lester's eccentric storytelling style. The Sulkins wanted to make the film sexy by bringing in people like uh, Ursula Andress and Leonard Whiting into the parts, but pretty much left uh, Lester to it. And that's why you get notables like Spike Milligan and Roy Kinnear popping up, because he, he was such a big fan of those and a big fan of the goons. The film doesn't go without controversy. And this is something that the uh, the Sulkins fell foul on with Superman. So uh, the film was originally intended to be an epic movie with an intermission halfway through the film. But during the production, it was determined the film couldn't make its announced release date in that form. So the decision was made to split the longer film into two shorter features. So we got 1974's The Four Musketeers. Now, it is a seamless looking film because it was intended to be one film. And that left egg on the face with the producers because a lot of the cast, right up to the point of the film being shown, incensed because they'd only signed on to do the one film. In fact, Charlton Heston apparently said at the dinner where the film was previewed and this information was previewed, two for the price of one. So the second feature results in lawsuits being filed to receive compensation for salaries associated with the sequel. That's what's known as the Salkind Clause. That's right. Yeah, uh, and, and they, they did the same thing with Superman, but of course they got this clause in now. The intention of Superman was to shoot Superman and Superman 2 back to back. Uh, And that was kind of their thing, seen as a money-saving exercise to be able to shoot like that. And, of course, we've we've had films since then, you know, The Avengers, if you think about it, Avengers, uh, um, Endgame and Infinity War were shot back-to-back, as are the current Mission Impossible films. But despite all that, the film was a runaway success. And if you've not had a chance to see it, it is an absolutely whole bundle of fun. It's provocative version uh, down to... It, it doesn't send the film up. It doesn't send the story up, but it just adds to the adventure comedy. Don't you think? It's, no, it's never a spoof of these kind of films. But no, it, it, it just it, adds an element and a layer of, of sometimes slapstick and, and, and comedy and, and comic, comedic timing into the movie. Yeah, it, it uses levity to just like elevate it from being just like a political drama and conspiracy story into something entertaining for the whole family. Yeah, it's some of the some of the humor is slightly dated. Has to be said that it is ribald and it is it does occasionally step close to the carry on kind of humor, but I think it skirts around it nicely. I think it plays around it without becoming too crass. Can we just mention the costume design? Yes, of because course. the costumes in the in this film and the second film were absolutely evocative of the time that it's set in because it's set in the time of the anglo-french war 1627 to 29 and so there was a lot of opportunity to have in like the grungy peasants roles with the burlap sack kind of cloth costumes looking dirty and grungy but contrasted with like the cardinal's robes which are never looked better on screen uh, absolutely brilliant costume design from start to finish. And because D'Artagnan comes from poverty and works him, himself up to be within the royal circle, you see him work through all those aspects of costume until he's a flamboyant musketeer himself. I love the look of this film. I love the feel of this film and the sequel, The Four Musketeers, and even the, uh, the Return of the Musketeers that followed a decade and a half later. Yeah, the 20 years after film. Uh, came out in 
1989, loosely based on, on the 1845 novel by Dumas, 20 years after. I don't have much love for that at all. Not a great fan of The Return of the Musketeers. It feels forced. I feel, I feel that the the cast are now slightly too old to be playing those roles. And I know it's I know it's addressed within the story, but I, it just doesn't work for me, even though it's it's literally almost everybody who could returns to it, including Dick Lester. And of course, the, the, the sad part of that film is that Roy Kinnear lost his life on, in that film, which was a, a, a sad, sad yeah. loss to to the industry and a, and a great comedic actor. But no, I've, I've got to be honest, The Return of the Musketeers just doesn't do it for me at all. There have been other adaptations of The Musketeers over the years, and I think it's my love of the original story that it's adapted from that still holds my interest in every adaptation, even well, I've got to mention uh, my my good friend Paul W S Anderson <laughs> and his take on it. I was waiting to bring that in, <laughs> which he he brought a steampunk kind of aesthetic to it and did it in a rather different way. And I embraced that energy that he brought to it. I know it's not a great adaptation, but it was fun, and that's what I want from a Musketeers film. I want some fun. I want it to not take itself too seriously. But I don't think that any adaptation, even the uh, Brat Pack 90s version with uh, Keith Sutherland and Charlie Sheen, even that version doesn't stand anywhere close to the 1973 original. It's a film that came out when I was born. It came out the same year that I was born. It's been with me all my life and it will be with me until the day I die. Uh, I've got to agree. I'm just going to... Uh, I totally agree with you on the the Brat Pack version, though I did like, uh, and I know I'm I'm kind of one of the only people who did. I like the Musketeer 2001 Peter Hyams version, which was was used as sort of the uh, the wire work from Sue Hark's uh, regulars uh, Zin Zin Zong for all the stunt choreography. But I do have a bit of a soft spot for it by comparison to those other films. But you're right. If you're thinking of a Musketeers film, then you've got to visit. The Three Musketeers, and subsequently The Four Musketeers. So let's get on with this week's reviews. Andy, what do we have from your huge list of movies that I've not seen <laughs> over <laughs> the last week that we can talk about? But we do have one film in common. Should we save that till last? And you want to get on we'll with We'll save that till last. I'm interested to know what you thought of Malignant, because I've still not had a chance to see it yet. And uh, uh, your review might swing it for me. We'll start with Malignant. So Malignant has James Wan returning to horror in between his Aquaman big blockbusters that he's working on with a nod back to 80s style of slasher and grotesque horror, which offers a few twists and turns along the way, which makes it difficult to talk too much about this without spoiling stuff. When I was young, something happened to me. Someone's saying that. Who are you talking to? Gabriel. Is he your imaginary friend? He's back. This is one of those films that is best to go in without reading anything about and just embrace it and experience it without already knowing it. But let's give a brief plot synopsis. Opens in 1993, and Dr. Florence Weaver and her colleagues have been performing experiments on a patient at the Simeon Research Hospital, one of those classic research hospitals that looks very gothic, sat on the edge of a cliff in a rather precarious position. Their patient, Gabriel, is out of control, 
and developing abilities which allow him to manipulate electrical devices and also gives him superior strength. After the latest incident, the Doctor declares that they must cut out whatever makes Gabriel bad. Cut to 28 years later, and we shift to Madison Lake, a pregnant woman in an abusive relationship. However, after another attack from her abusive partner results in her injuring herself, she starts to experience strange visions that plague her, and bodies start to pile up. Now, that's as much as I'm telling you about the story, because that's literally the first five minutes, and I don't want to spoil anything on this. But all I need to say is that Malignant shouldn't be taken seriously as a horror. It's bloody, it's brutal, and it is occasionally chilling, but it is more a grindhouse-esque kind of approach, drawing inspiration from the old masters of shock and body horror, including Italian giallo style of filmmaking horror. Cronenberg is heavily hinted at in here, and there's also a touch of Stephen King. And it delivers, for me, what was a fun homage to the influences that Wan himself was a fan of throughout his life. The acting is nothing special in this film, but that's not important because you're not here for the acting. You're here for the the chills, the terror, and the blood splats and the, the body horror gore. I had a lot of fun with this because I did not expect a full-on horror and it didn't deliver a full-on horror. I'm quite a fan of James Wan. I like what he's done with... Yeah, he's the guy who gave us the first Saw film which is the only good Saw film. He started the Insidious franchise. He was there at the start of the Conjuring franchise. He's creative when it comes to horror, even though he does rely a little too heavily on make everything go noisy, then it goes very quiet so I can go boo and jump scare approach. But I don't think he uses it that much in this. Instead, like I say, he's having fun emulating those 80s style of films that he grew up with. So much fun to be had. Malignant is on the big screen at the moment. Watch it at the cinema because I think that's how you best experience a film like this. Okay, let's talk about respect because that's something that we've both seen. How old is she? 10, but her voice is 30, honey. You I want to sing what I want to sing. Think about what you're trying to do to me. Have you lost your mind? Maybe I found it. So Respect is a biographical film about Aretha Franklin. It starts off with her being a child at her father's church, singing in the choir and doing solo pieces. And it follows through to the height of her international fame. And it's a film that seeks to explore the troubles and hardship that Franklin endured to get to the top. But sadly, it feels as wishy-washy as a puff piece of filmmaking, albeit well cast and strikingly shot. I have to totally agree with everything that you said. Huge soul music fan, huge Aretha Franklin uh, 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 fan. She just has a, a God-given voice. And that's kind of um, touched upon in the very early part of this uh, of this film. The things that work about it are the casting, and that is Jennifer Hudson and the, the girl who plays the young Aretha. It's got a good cast, which do very, very well with very, very mm. slight material. It falls into the tropes that most biopics do, which is uh, somebody uh, gets famous, they have to uh, battle inner demons, they have to battle something uh, outside of their their, uh, their talent, and they have to redeem themselves with some kind of a gig. I'm looking at you, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and it hit all those tropes. We, we never get to understand the inner demons as they're referred to 
that, that Aretha had. They're sort of skirted around. We know they're there, but we don't know what it is. It, 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 it basically goes from one bad experience she's having with men to the next bad experience she's having with men, whether it's something horrific like uh, uh, that, that's touched upon very early in the film or, or dealing with the white musicians who are the, the, the Muscle Shoals guys. But I never, ever really believed it. What I did believe is that no. Jennifer Hudson has a fantastic voice and does that neat trick of not imitating Aretha, but does something uh, more than that. It's, it's, it's the way that, that uh, Anthony Hopkins played Nixon. It's an interpretation of that, that person as opposed to the Bohemian Rhapsody turn of events where they look and sound and, 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 and mimic that person. And I think that's what makes this film stand above that is is that performance and she just has as aretha did that that god-given talent of a voice she's got a huge yeah. voice it never sounds like aretha franklin's voice and that's why it worked it, it's it's a homage to it it's an homage to that that particular style and that particular gift but ultimately as you said it's a bit saccharine it doesn't really say anything it's light uh, and, and fails because of that, because I think there's a better story. And I know this story has been kicked around for a few years in Hollywood, but I think every time somebody new's taken a stab at it, they've taken a layer off the onion that was absolutely important to understanding who she was. But we're left with this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and something yeah. bad, and then something good, and then something bad. Biopic trope, which is always a letdown in this kind of genre. The, the film almost, very almost, tackled the subject of abuse head-on and mental illness and addiction. Like you say, there was the early abuse that is kind of hinted at, but because it, you never feel that there's any repercussions from it, you never feel there's any impact from it. And so you kind of go, eh, well, what hardships did she have? Because it doesn't show the hardships properly. It just kind of just moves along moves along, moves along, skirts around things, sanitizes stuff that might be controversial and strips the journey of Riri from any actual drama or impact. Instead, it's a bland straight line approach to biographical film. It ticks the fan pleasing boxes, occasional blast of songs and a final rousing number to rapturous applause. And it feels less of a look at the troubled star on the rise tale and more just a, like I said before, a puff piece. Uh, you mentioned the cast, Jennifer Hudson, like you say, is marvellous, but let's not forget Forrest Whitaker, yep. who is solid as her father. You've got Mary J. Blige and Queen Latifah bringing some soul presence into there. And Titus Burgess, who most people recognise from um, uh, Kimmy Schmidt on TV. And I, I saw his name crop up at the beginning. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to be a parody like he always plays. And it's like, oh, no, he kind of works in this film. Everyone looks great, thanks to some solid direction. And the cinematography from Kramer Morgenthau, who gave us films like Chef, Creed 2, Dogtown, he knows how to lens things. He knows how to light things. And it looks beautiful. But the core life story is nothing new. It's all too safe and bland. And it was far too long a runtime for what it was telling. Absolutely. So what else have you seen that I haven't? Now, an absolute blast landed on Netflix this week. And that is Kate, which stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead as an assassin on a bloody revenge streak. Jesus, Kate, what happened to you? I missed. I think I was poisoned before the hit. V, who was the target? The grand honcho of the Yakuza. 
How much time do I have? 14 hours, maybe 15. <laughs> Kate, it's gonna be okay. You won't get any more questions from me after today. Who are you? I'm Kate. This film, and, and I might be wrong, reminds me of the 1949 noir film DOA, which was also remade in, in 1988 with, with Dennis Quaid, in which a, a guy turns up at a police station, discovers he's being poisoned, and the rest of the film is trying to figure it out. Would I be right in saying that? Uh, yeah, there's some elements of that in there. There's also some elements that made me think of Crank, the Jason Statham action, frantic nature, where he's got a limited amount of time before his heart stops. Because there's nothing in this film that's actually that original. And it is very formulaic. But boy, it's so much fun following this formula when it's done in such an energetic way. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is fast becoming quite the modern day action heroine, is an assassin who's been trained from childhood, working for Woody Harrelson's Varick. She grows a conscience on her latest assignment when her kill impacts directly on the daughter of her target who was present at the killing. Vowing to do one more job before she quits, she ends up being poisoned with 24 hours to live and then uses that time to seek revenge on those responsible for poisoning her, carving her way through the Tokyo underworld, forming a bond with the same girl that she made an orphan. And this is a sharp, it's a swift, and it's a fast-paced action thriller from French director Cédric Nicolas Trojan, um, who gave us Huntsman's Winter's War, but let's not hold that against him. He was also second unit on Maleficent, Snow White and the Huntsman, and Pirate's Dead Man's Chest. And whilst moments do look cartoony, there's a high-speed car chase in this that looks like it's being taken straight out of the Need for Speed video game series. It looks so (laughs) ridiculous. But it more than delivers in the gun and knife fights with a frantic choreography and violent acrobatics. Generic plot template is very predictable. You know exactly where this is going at any moment throughout the film. But Winstead gives it a marvellously grounded core and she shines as more than just an action heroine, but as a dramatic and breathing star front and centre. Her journey, as ludicrous as it sometimes gets, is engaging and feels real simply because of how much she gives to the part. And she genuinely makes you care about this this character who has spent her life killing people for money. She's not a nice person, but in her last 24 hours, she grows a heart. Is it too late? You have to watch the film to find out. It's bloody. It's beautifully visual. It's a pacey one hour 46, which, let's be honest, for a Netflix film, that's quite short. And it zips by. This is well worth a stab. Stab, 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 stab. And you'll understand that reference when you watch the film. I think you talked me into it, Andy. I think I'm, I think I'm keen on it now. As I said, um, if you've not seen DOA, which might have been an influence on this, well worth checking out. Can I just add one thing that is worth definitely watching this for is to see Mary Elizabeth, Elizabeth Winstead, who is always great on film. But you watch this, and if you don't have the thought that she looks like a young Ellen Ripley um, from the Aliens films, and start thinking, you know, if they recast it for a reboot of Alien, <laughs> they really need to cast her on board of it. Absolutely. She, she is the modern day Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Okay, so that's the film reviews. One of the other things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks has been the MCU's Disney Plus show, What If? This week, we've got the episode we were all looking forward to, Marvel Zombies. I'm one, Andy's one but not in that kind.
follow me. Enter the multiverse of infinite possibilities. Reality is not a straight line. Every passing moment is a chance for a new offshoot, a new variation. In fact, there are more realities than you can possibly fathom. An infinite number of what is. Stories you thought you knew are nothing like you remember. What if? Andy, did you enjoy this week's show? Let, let me let me just make something clear here. The Marvel Zombies, when it started in comic book form, uh, brought to Marvel from the the master of zombie comic literature, Robert Kirkman was great. Volume 1 was fantastic. It played with the concept of zombies within the Marvel Universe in a, in a quite powerful and emotional way. And then Volume 2 came along, picked it up, wasn't as good, but was okay. And then it got done to death and undeath and undeath over three more volumes and spin-offs and additional stories. And this, for me, this week was the weakest of the What If episodes. Because... I'm so surprised to hear that from you, Andy. I really I... am. I just feel that this this is something that was clearly shoehorned in because, hey, the fans like Marvel zombies. Let's do Marvel MCU zombies because the fans like it because the fans always know what's good. Yeah. No, the fans never listen to the fans. Never please fans. Otherwise, you get things like Venom being introduced in Spider-Man 3. Never listen to the fans. They don't know what they want. Proper fans want to be surprised. This offered no surprises. It was just a sequence of jokey zombie-led moments that lacked impact, lacked drama, and left me at the end of it thinking, I'll be happy if I see none of these characters again. Every one of these what-ifs so far, I'd be interested to see those characters come back later on. I'd be interested to see, you know, Captain Carter brought into the major MCU. I'd definitely be interested to see the darker Doctor Strange, as we've discussed last week. But with this one, it got to the end of it, and I thought, nah, I'm done with this. I'm done with zombies. Zombies have been done too much. And I know it tried to take a jokey approach. It tried to have fun with it. But it was nothing fresh. It was nothing new. And I just felt it was okay at best. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I'm going to take an opposing view on this one. I had a good time with it. It was a, a nice bit of light relief after the last few, which have all they've all been so tonally different. They've all been very, very clearly Marvel shows and have offered something into the bigger universe. But I think, especially after the Doctor Strange one, this was a, um, a, a palate cleanser for whatever next week's episode is. And this, is, this was the same with the What If uh, comics. Each book and each episode is tonally, tonally different uh, and brings you, uh, brings you something fresh and different. And, and I just had a good time with this one in the same way that I had good time with episode two, which is, uh, if you remember what I said, that's when I really understood what this series was about, about doing things that they would never normally do. As I said, the first one was beat for beat Captain America. And that was fine because that was the, the telling on this story. The second one did, did something fresh and different with, uh, with the characters, with, with the Guardian setup. The Fury's Worst Week one was, again, a different style. Each one has been different. Yeah. And this one just amused me. I thought it was nicely tongue-in-cheek. Reminded me of Zombieland. You know, and you're right in saying it didn't bring anything new to the zombie world. I never read the comics 
So I was never particularly invested in them. So that Marvel Zombies where it did become dull, mm. I didn't stick around for it. So I, I don't have that relationship. I only remember it from uh, uh, an issue of Black Panther and, and when it was initially introduced in the Ultimate Fantastic Four. So yeah. I had a good time. And I had a secondly, what made this fun for me was sat with my kid watching it who jumped and put cushions over his face when when he saw the zombies because there were some really good kills in this one for a <laughs> for a marvel show animated show aimed at a, a broad audience so i i had a good time with it it was inconsequential compared to say the doctor strange one but that's the fun of this show wherever we go next week we'll offer another an, another course on the menu and that's what i'm enjoying about what if and again you can't knock the wonderful animation oh yeah the animation was striking uh, like like you've suggested with like you've not read the comics i think the problem that i had and i spoke with a, a colleague at work who same as me has loved every episode but we both felt disappointed with this we've both read the comics of the marvel zombies and so know what they could have tapped into and how they could have delivered it and that's the problem is that there was so much potential to do something genuinely heartfelt and different but it didn't it, it trod the familiar territory rather than rather than playing with it out as it could have done. We know what it had potential to be, and it didn't live to that potential. And that's where the problem is. But does it mean that I'm not going to watch What If going forward? <laughs> Are you kidding? Of course I'm going to watch next week's one. Because I said this when we first started talking about What If. I've got all the comics of What If. And yes, there's some duff issues in those comics, but I always picked up the next issue the following month on the shelf. I love exploring the multiverse. And I can't wait to see next week's one. So that's what if. Andy, what else is coming up this way for the Cinema Fantastique audience that is out there? So at cinemas this week, there's Gunpowder Milkshake finally makes it to a UK release. Uh, everybody's talking about Jamie and everybody's singing about Jamie, apparently. Uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland and The Starling. So no major heavy hitters except for Jamie getting a limited release across the UK, track it down because it's going to be a musical spectacular. However, if you can't track it down, don't worry because everybody's talking about Jamie also lands on Amazon Prime this week, along with the Mad Woman's Ball, which is also landing there. And over on Sky, yes, it's out at the cinemas, Gunpowder Milkshake, but it's a Sky exclusive, so they've got it at the same time. So you've got the choice. You can watch it at home. You can watch it on the big screen. You know where I prefer to watch it. And over on Netflix, there's... A documentary called Schumacher, which is about the Formula One racing driver. And if you're a fan of Formula One like I am, that's something that is definitely going to have to be watched. And everybody's talking about Jamie. We'll have a bit of a change in next week's episode because my partner, Angela, will be reviewing it. Excellent. So that's about it for this week's show. But as ever, before we go, we'll tell you about our neat thing, which is to say, something that we've watched, enjoyed, uh, ate, read, you name it. If we've enjoyed it and we think it's neat, we're going to tell you what that is. And Andy, what is your neat thing for this week? My neat thing is an absolute joy that is available on Disney Plus as part of their star line at the moment. And it's coming out weekly and we're only three episodes in in the UK. Fourth one drops this week. And that is a series called Only Murders in the Building. This is a story of three strangers that live in the same apartment block who share an obsession with true crime. 
and suddenly find themselves wrapped up in one when a grisly death occurs inside their exclusive Upper West Side apartment building. The trio suspects murder and employs their precise knowledge from all the podcasts that they listen to to investigate the truth with their own eccentricities because the three involved are Selena Gomez, who has a mysterious past, Steve Martin, who's playing Charles H. Savage, who was once a very prominent figure on a cop TV show and has never been able to get another another job in acting since, and Martin Short, who was a Broadway creative director who was maybe a bit too creative and flamboyant. And the three are such different personalities that clearly don't like each other, but partner up and find they have this shared obsession to solve this crime. And it's been years since we've been reminded of how great Steve Martin was or how great Martin Short was. And this is joyously pitching them both together and letting them have fun with it. Only Murders in the Building is the title of the show is because they at one point they speculate whether they can explore crimes across the city and they decide, no, only murders in the building are what we're going to focus on. And it's fun, it's well shot, it's well presented, it's darkly comic, but it's flamboyantly brilliant. Thoroughly recommended. Um, season one, like I say, is playing at the moment on Disney+. Plus. We're only a few episodes in, half hour to 40 minute episodes. Get it checked each week. You will absolutely, absolutely love it. It reminds me sometimes of, do you remember the show um, Bored to Death? Yes, yes, I do. I liked it a lot. It's got a very similar aesthetic to that at times. So if you liked that, check in on this one and see Martin Short and Steve Martin paired up on screen again for the first time in decades and realise what we've been missing out on in all these years. And my neat thing following that, and that does sound pretty cool and I do really fancy that. I'd noticed it cropped up. Uh, and I'm ready to give that a go. So my neat thing for this week, and off the back end of something we mentioned earlier, which was the Hawkeye trailer dropping for Apple Plus, I have been reading the Hawkeye series, which I think, and from everything that I've seen in the trailer as well, inspired that series, which was the series by David Ager and the fantastic Matt Fraction, which took Hawkeye in a completely different a different direction than anything we'd seen before, got rid of the costume, had a sense of knowingness, was an incredibly hip book, uh, beautifully illustrated by Asia in, a, in, a, in an almost minimalistic style. A fantastic read, uh, gathered into, uh, in, into, the, into the graphic novels, or I read it rather than getting through it monthly. But if that's the series, which was also the introduction to Kate Bishop, the other Hawkeye, I can't wait even more to see this Hawkeye series because it was such such a great and unique original take on that character. And if that's what they're bringing in, so be it. I am so in. And we'll be back next week for another film file as ever. Andy, always a pleasure, my friend. Always a joy. Always a joy. I love these little chats that we have each week. <laughs> but Andy, you'll find, young man, the future looks rosier through the bottom of a glass. Thank <laughs> you.